Natalie, have you ever heard something for the first time and it was just so different than anything else you'd heard and you just became so entrenched or obsessed with it? Oh, absolutely. As musicians, you like live for those kinds of moments, don't you? Yeah. I mean, and not necessarily old stuff, any kind of music, new, old, just new to you. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've found plenty of examples of that throughout the decades. And the feeling is always just as intense and beautiful. And like I said, every time it happens, it's always magic. Oh, hi. Welcome to the store. Let us know if you need anything. Take a look around. Yeah, I get super obsessed and I will listen to as many albums as I can of the catalog. What kind of levels of obsession do you go into? I'm the same way. I'll, I'll get really obsessed with maybe a particular track that drew me in. And then I just, I have to know every little detail about this person, where they came from, you know, who influenced them. And then I'll just dig all the way into the full discography. Yeah. Oh, hey, look who it is. It's Seth oh, hey. Johnson. Seth Nicholas Johnson. Hey, Seth. Hey, everybody. So happy to be here. It's uh, it's great to be here as a customer for once. This is fun. Yeah, yeah. How's your time off been? Uh, I don't know. You know, I miss working in a record store. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure if there is a job better than being forced to spend your whole day in a record store. So I don't know. I wish I still worked here, but I'm glad Natalie is here working instead of me because Natalie's the fucking coolest. So oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I praise coming from you. I appreciate it. Good to see you again. Yeah. Yeah, Natalie is pretty darn cool. Starting to learn more and more about her. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about how if you have ever heard music or an album or anything that just sounds totally different from anything you'd ever heard before and kind of like what kind of journey it takes you on. What do you do you go down like deep dives whenever you hear something you've never heard before or how do you react? Definitely. Yeah, no, and, and I, I also love, um, it's like, it, it is like a feeling. It's like an electric feeling in your body. And um, I particularly love it when it happens like a live show. Like, like, like when you are there somewhere, you aren't expecting anything. Usually it's like an opening act or something, or maybe it's a, a band you love, but they're trying something brand new. And like, it really does feel like it's something brand new. Like I, I know all three of us listen to a lot of music and it's, um, it's difficult to be surprised by music when we've all been at this for our whole lives, you know? I mean, by far, the, 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 the number one thing I do with all of my time and energy is listen to music. So when I, when I do find something brand new, it feels amazing. And it's like such a dangerous hunt because it's not out there, you know? Like there's gotta be maybe, maybe one every few years of feeling like a brand new sensation of like, wow, this is brand new and I love this. And um, I could seriously go back like the past like five years and tick off just like four or five. And it's not, it's not often and it's not common, but it it usually leads me down something pretty exciting when it does start, you know? Yeah. I I too am always kind of chasing, haven't we described it before as sort of chasing the dragon, trying to find that that same feeling with anything, always constantly listening to new music to find that one thing. And honestly, as of late, during the pandemic especially, I've been listening to a lot of older music, searching for something new. Mm. 
And it's been really fun and exciting. I'm going down super deep rabbit holes, learning about these people that I'd never really listened to in depth before. Not because it's any sort of new sound, but new to me sound for sure. Yeah. And I think that's just as important. Like, like, like I'll give you an example of something that is ridiculous, but is real for me. Okay. The first time I heard Fitter Happier, that middle track on OK Computer by Radiohead. Fitter, happier, more productive, comfortable, not drinking too much, regular exercise at the gym. It was just a little robot spoken word, little intermission on the album. When I heard that, let's see, I would have been 12 years old at the time. That was the first time I had ever heard something like that. Despite the fact that like the Velvet Underground had done it with like the gift on like White Light, White Heat. They'd already done that before in like the 1970s or whenever, but I didn't hear it back then. I heard it on Radiohead's OK Computer. So no matter how I received it, it's still introducing me to something brand new to my little ears. And then I go, what's this? And then you kind of hunt it down and you find more spoken word stuff. And then suddenly you're into the fall and you're having a great time, you know? Yeah. That's a really good point you bring up, Seth, is it's important how you encounter the sound for the first time. And then you kind of go back and you follow that historical thread and it just opens up this whole new world and you see how we got to this particular point. But there's something yeah. really special about the this, the way you experience it for the first time. Right, um, right. And I'm the same way as you are, Tara. I'm diving into a lot of older music more than anything, and, and finding sounds that I've that I completely missed, and being just dazzled. Especially like I don't know the '70s. I'm having a serious love affair with the '70s these days. Mm-hmm. There's just so much cool experimental creative stuff happening just across genres. So I've been getting a lot of that magical feeling from you know, decades old music. And I think that's really neat. Actually, just recently did a full Sun Records studio set. And just learning about the recording process there was really interesting. I mean, again, like this is just, you know, the blues, rockabilly, country, um, rock from back in the 50s and 60s. But to hear how they're recording with like four mics, everyone in one room and there's tons of bleed. It didn't matter because what mattered was how it made everyone feel. And so I think mm-hmm. that's like part of it too. And well, we haven't played the high fidelity game in a minute. Uh, would you be down to play Ooh. with us? Of course, of course. Always happy to. Top five albums that introduce you to something new in music. Sounds great. Yeah. Awesome. Got the feels already. I know. Natalie, <laughs> would you like to go first? Because I think I went first last time. Oh, yeah? Okay, sweet. I'll go first. Yeah. You guys ready? Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can't wait. So, my first album, I'm going to have to go with Aphex Twin, Richard D. James. <laughs> album came out in 1996. This album absolutely blew my mind. I, I think I discovered Aphex Twin on a compilation album from the MTV show Amp. Oh, yeah, yeah, one of, those, of course. Yeah, one of those late night programs that focused on electronic music. They put out a couple of compilations on the Astral Works label. And that first one had some really cool artists on it, like the Chemical Brothers and Underworld, Orbital, uh, the Crystal Method. And they had the Girl Boy song from that Richard D. James album. And I was just 
in love with it. It was, I'd never heard any dance or electronic music quite like it. It was very playful. There's something really mysterious and odd about it. So I, I went out and got the album. And I've always been like really drawn to artists who kind of purposefully blur the lines of a particular genre. And like, even as I was diving more into more niche electronic and dance styles, Aphex Twin just remained the outlier among them, you know? Yeah. But yeah, he's he's a really fascinating artist. I just, I, I loved his elusive character who just kind of seemed just wholly disinterested in fame and just had this compulsion to create all this really cool music. And I really envied that about him. That's the kind of creative tapeworm I aspire to catch in my life, especially these days. <laughs> it's just yeah. to have that drive to just get the music out of your system constantly. How, how did he make himself feel so special because still to this day he feels like an outlier in like the electronic and uh, uh, music field and I, I think you are absolutely right he did go out of his way to try to be unpopular uh, what was that name of his really popular song um, it's him in a bikini is, is that the bikini oh, one or is that the, the other album? one uh, oh, I think the album no wait is it come to daddy no it's window liquor the yeah, album I, is window liquor yeah yeah but, but but it was either Come to Daddy or Window Liquor. It was one of those two. One of them was getting really, really popular and he didn't want it to be popular. So he intentionally only put out like a certain number so that it could never make it onto the charts or something. Like That's he went hilarious. out of his way to ensure that he would never have like even an accidental success. He was like, no, 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 <laughs> this, this isn't for me. Uh, I'll just throw in the word allegedly because I don't know these facts off the top of my head, but I remember I that's something that, I read though. once. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. sounds about right. Mm -hmm. But you know, I, once I heard that album, I started like going back into his, his more ambient works and his other records before yeah. that. And I, ironically, I think this album is the most accessible of his, all, all of his albums, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's just, it's got more traditional song structures and, you know, he does some singing. It's got some catchy melodies like that Beatles tune, which is one of my favorites. Just the vibe. It, it's like, it should be super creepy, but it's just too playful to be actually upsetting. And I kind of like how he rides that line. He's got a sense of humor. And Absolutely. I think that's part of it. Self-awareness, a sense of humor, a sense of mystery, and also like an incredible amount of talent. Like, I, I think it's, I think that's part of it is that you can have those other things and it'll get you pretty far. But if you're not also really musically talented, mm -hmm. who cares? But each of those elements could stand on their own. So altogether, it kind of weaves itself into this like really strong rope of like, nah, this is great, <laughs> you know? For sure. For sure. Yeah. And speaking to that about him being so talented, I found that like one of the pitfalls of dance music around that time is like this tendency to establish a beat and then just never deviate from it. And the right. track could go on for like six minutes, but yeah. he absolutely cut those tethers. He wasn't afraid to chop up the beat or, you know, change it all together mid-track or do some extended stuttering passage that just kept your brain twitching. He was really, really smart and he never did it too much to where you felt burned out on it. He just kind of kept you guessing at every turn which makes yeah. listening to his music really yeah. fun, you know? Yeah, I actually thought about Aphex Twin for my list as well, but I didn't do it just because there were some others I wanted to capture. But it, it, the same thing, just like the first time really hearing that sort of chopped up, screwed up kind of sound, but alongside of like something really melodic, especially with mm -hmm. the song Window Liquor. And he also does a lot of really interesting, interesting things with like math formulas, to yeah, yeah. create sound. Yeah, he's he's a genius. 
Have you seen the video of him? Or it's one of his shows where he has a like a actual full size, maybe like a grand piano, I think, programmed to play one of his songs. He has it on chains, swinging from the ceiling, so that wow. the movement of the actual <sighs> piano is kind of changing the sound for wherever it is in the room for whoever is standing in that place in the room. That's amazing. I have not heard of it. It's on YouTube. Check it out. It's wild. So yeah, he's always pushing himself to do wild and different things like that. Hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Such a good choice. Right. So, oh, and one more thing about him. He's got a track on there called Cornish Acid. I think it's the second track on the album. Another favorite of mine. But just like in contrast to how how much he chops beats and changes things up. This one is just very simple. It's kind of like this electro mantra. He's got this basic like motif, you know, on top of this beat that just sort of repeats, but there's this little four to the floor kick drum segment and he drops it in at different points of this quote unquote mantra. And it's just so subtle and so simple, but it it sets off the groove in a totally new way. And it just makes it extra funky. And I've always been so impressed with how Subtle changes can really elevate the whole track. Yeah. Not much going on, you know, and he's smart enough to know how to do that. So I've always been really impressed with that. For sure. All right. Shall we move on? Number two, Or Shit. The album is Gore Trance 9, released in 2015. <laughs> Are either of you familiar with Gorshit? No. He's one of my mm. favorites. <laughs> Big question mark. No, I have no idea. I'm so excited to share this one with you. So there'd been like this period of time where I completely lost track of all the happy hardcore, speedcore, noisy industrial dance music that I loved so much back in the day. I just, I was afraid that it had died. I couldn't find anything new that was delivering the level of intensity that I wanted. But then my partner introduced me to this incredible British producer called... Shit. And this guy is definitely carrying the torch, giving me the next level happy hardcore experience I love. Can you spell gore shit for me? G-O-R-E-S-H-I-T. That's what I figured. Just to make sure. <laughs> That's gore shit, man. All one word. Can't candy coat it. <laughs> right. So Gorshit started as a two-man black metal band, two college pals by the name of uh, Leon Makepeace and Shred Wilson. And I think they released one album before Shred Wilson left and then Leon took over the Gorshit moniker and started producing really intense lollycore. So lollycore is like speedcore, breakcore, layered with high-pitched Japanese pop and anime vocals. And to the virgin ear, it's going to sound completely insane and chaotic, but trust me, this man's technical uh, proficiency in production is just so clean and tight. I also think he's kind of a genius. It's, it's amazing. It's, I think it's similar. I think the reason it resonates with me so much is kind of like what it sounds like inside of my own skull. <laughs> mm, <laughs> yeah. Like all the frantic, kinetic anxiety and crazy energy. I'm like, oh, I, I understand this man immediately. For anybody who's curious about it, I think Gore Trance 9 is the best entry level Gorshit album. He's also very prolific, similarly to Aphex Twin. But this one's a little more approachable, a little dancier. But if you want to go there, he can get really intense. Another favorite <laughs> album of mine is called You Get the Tracks You Deserve. And he's got this track on there called Slavic Goblins, which has the most brutal intro to any dance track I've ever heard. 
Wow. And I just go nuts every time I hear it. This sounds amazing. Yeah. I, I can't wait to look I'm this up. I'm definitely intrigued. I don't know the difference between all those cores. Lollycore, was it Happy Hardcore? I mean, it's like Speedcore because yeah, like Happy Hardcore is really fast. <laughs> so how fast is Speedcore? You know, like, is that even faster? It all kind of overlaps. Like the Happy <laughs> Hardcore is more into that, well, happy and yeah. that sort of those anime and, you know, super high-pitched vocals. Speedcore, you're getting more into that like industrial noise, breakcore, breakbeats. You know, it, it, they all kind of overlap in some What's way. M- mashcore. Mashcore. What is that? I've never heard know. that before. I'm not sure. I mean, you brought it up to her. What's mashcore? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> did, we, did we just create a genre? <laughs> There's so many genres, they all blend together. So, electronic music. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, right. But yeah. Basically. Well, here, uh, I mean, Natalie, when I when I hear what you're explaining, the closest sound in my head is like baby metal. <laughs> is this similar to baby metal, or is this it's, different than that? Because that doesn't sound that baby metal seems pure metal with those high pitched anime vocals on top that makes it kind of cutesy and fun and kind of like disparate between like you know the bass and the vocals. Now, is this similar to that, but it's electronic? The vocals would be appropriate, yes, but okay. the music is going to be fully, it's full electronic. Think more like really yeah. hard industrial techno. Okay. Really loud and fast. Yeah. Yeah, I got to check this out. Sounds great. Not so rocky. Yeah. No, it's it's super cool. In my mind, I was picturing like CP, like computer club type music on top of Happy Hard. Mm. So that sort of yeah. pitched up vocal, yeah. but really fast. Do, do, do. Nice. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I, lo- I look forward to this. This is going to be fun. So I think I actually shared a cover that Gorshit did of Frank Zappa's oh, whoa. Flower Punk with all of you Ooh. recently. And that one's, that's incredible too. If you want a taste of just how out there he can get. So that's a fun track. Out there on top of out there. Frank Zappa out there on top of even more out there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Wow. As if you can make Frank Zappa even more out there. But I guess what this album showed me is it it gave me some closure. It gave me some hope about what had happened to my beloved happy hardcore movement, you know, from the from the 90s and the 2000s. And I see that it's still out there evolving. Yeah. It's still melting faces. And I'm still excited about it. So wait, can you, when was it that you said you found <laughs> out about this? Like, what's the timing of gore shit? I'd say... For you, I guess. Within the last... Five years, I would have discovered Gorshit. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and he's super prolific. He does a lot of like uh, live streams and mixes online. So just look him up on YouTube and the man works hard. (laughs) Okay. Nice. My next album, (laughs) Tori Amos, Under the Pink, 1994. Thought that was a good solution, hanging with the raisin girls. I love me some Tori Amos. Uh, this is her third studio album. Huge commercial yeah. success. So it's it's funny. I actually discovered Tori Amos for the first time uh, my freshman year in high school. And it was talent show season. And there were two or three <laughs> upper class women who approached me to accompany them on the piano so they could sing. And they all picked Tori Amos songs, which is just so typical for these like moody drama club proto emo girls in my high school, right? 
Um, and they both dropped full sheet music books for Tori's mm-hmm. first two albums, Little Earthquakes and Under the Pink. So that's how I first discovered her music is by sight reading her music on the piano, wow. which is a really wild way to experience Tori Amos for the first time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, she's she's amazing. And when I was reading the music, it's like, oh, this this is legit. This isn't just a lead sheet with some chords on it. Like, no, this is a a child prodigy at work, <laughs> right? And she was a child prodigy. Absolutely, she was. She was the youngest student ever admitted wow. to the Peabody Institute. It's amazing. Yeah, I think she was like five. It's crazy. But um, yeah, people talk smack about Tori, but you got to give the woman her flowers. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What what, what smack are people talking about Tori Amos? I don't know. Let's, let's be honest. Sure. Let's be honest. People want to debate about... Uh, you know, her her influences and maybe a certain British pop star that, you know, kind of did something similarly. You know, people people try to downplay Tori Amos's uniqueness. Wait, 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 Natalie, I don't think I'm following you. What, what, what British musician are we talking about? Okay, let's just put it out there. Kate Bush. There's always been huh. this debate about Kate, Kate Bush and Tori Amos ripping off her whole style and her whole sound. And No, I don't see it. That's, I, don't, that's, I don't see that. Yeah, I, I don't I really like, see it either. Yeah. Thank you. They're so different. And I adore Kate I mean, Bush. Oh, yeah, for sure. Ditto. Me too. Her voice is totally different. She doesn't play piano. She's so focused on movement and art from that perspective, whereas I think Tori has a different I, Well, I, I see some similarities, but I think it's a little bit much to call it a straight up, yeah. like— Biting her style. I don't think that's fair. like. I, I feel like again, we're we're trying to like put labels on people. I'm sure no one needs that. Yeah. But I feel like Tori Amos, <laughs> if she is overlapping into Kate Bush territory, she's halfway into Kate Bush, halfway into Fiona Apple. You know, where where it does have like sort of that like high Baroque musical aptitude that like a, a Kate Bush has, but that like hard on your sleeve, declarative, angry singer songwriter that like a Fiona Apple has. Cause I feel like Tori's mm-hmm. mode of expression was so much more volatile than Kate Bush ever was. Kate Bush seemed much more like in control and like, not that, not that Tori almost wasn't in control, but like more stayed. Kate Bush seems much calmer than uh, Tori Amos mm-hmm. ever was. I don't know. I just don't see the comparison, That's I guess. Interesting. Yeah. When I first heard Tori Amos in the 90s, at my age, before that, it was like pop, you know, and maybe something you would expect a kid to listen to. Then you're entering, high, or me, I was entering high school hearing Tori Amos under the pink. And yeah, it was so... I don't know how to say it. So uh, grown up, like women, like women issues, you know, the words were different. I felt different. I I felt like I was growing up listening to her. That's not it. There's something there I'm trying to convey. Yeah. I I think it's her subject matter too. Like like the, the subject matter she chose to sing about, first of all, was very daring. It was very like strong and bold, but also most people weren't singing about the same subjects that she was singing about. Like it did feel like she was, gosh, gutsy, I guess is a good word for, for Tori Amos, you know? Yeah. The only other woman around the same time besides Fiona Apple, but I mean, I feel like she came later. Me too. Was Sinead O'Connor. Yeah. Talking about religion and 
kind of the oppression from her own family. And that's what Tori Amos was singing about a lot too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not only the subject matter. Yeah. It's not just the subject matter. It's also the language. Like Tori kind of had her own lyrical style. She had this really unique poetic way with metaphor. And and there's just something really Mm -hmm. mystical about the way she described emotions and experiences on top of it being a really intense (laughs) subjects that she was singing about. So Yeah. Actually, something not even on this album, but one one line that I've always related to still to this day, as someone who has three brothers, always had guy friends, um, and I think that's just because of my interests, music and whatnot, I need a big loan from the girl zone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love, I was just like, wow. She's yeah. she's got like you endless. You feel like you know what she means, right? She's got yeah. endless little gems like that that are just so catchy and so memorable, and just pack so much meaning into a few words. She's she's a lyrical genius for me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm very emotionally connected to all of the songs on this album. But I have to tell you, at the time when I was a freshman in high school, I was afraid, like legitimately afraid, to listen to tracks like "Icicle" and especially mm-hmm. the track "God." they were so seriously blasphemous for me at the right. time. So I, right. would, I would hide and listen to the songs joyously and sing along and then be filled with guilt and immediately repent. So I, had, <laughs> I was really emotionally wrapped up in those songs. No, no, I, now I follow I can you. To them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like, I remember here, here's something even more, um, gosh, silly that then, that then, um, than that, which was that, um, there was a cake song called Satan is my motor. Okay. And I, um, I loved it as a kid when that album first came out, I thought it was wonderful. And I did not know how to listen to it around my parents. I had no idea. Like, would they ask me questions? Would I have to explain it? And I remember the first time I was in like on like a road trip with my mom, like that CD was in and she heard it and she was like, what does this mean? What's the meaning behind this? I'm like, uh, it's ironic, <laughs> you know, like, right. what can you say? Like, I, I, I don't know what to say when someone is singing the phrase, Satan is my motor. How, how do you, how do you tell a parent who cares about these things very strongly that don't worry about it? It's, it's just, it's, these are just lyrics. It's not, it's, it's fine. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Thank goodness they didn't know what Cornflake Girl was in reference to. I mean, the story with that one is so deep. Right. It's wild. Yeah. I mean, I only recently found out what that was. Something about singing about Cornflake Girls as a teenager, though, is really fun. And then you find out much later that inspired by female uh, genital mutilation. Yeah. I had no idea. Had no idea as a teenager. Right. She went there. I'll leave that one open for someone mm-hmm. else to do the research. Yeah, I'll have to dig more into that one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, going back to what you said earlier, Seth, she's also just spectacular live. I've never seen someone take the same material that you've listened to for decades and find ways to just hit you at a completely different angle with it. She's so amazing live. You've seen her live? I've seen her live twice, <gasps> yes. Ooh. Oh my gosh. Now, the so first time jealous. I saw her, it was it was when she went on tour with Alanis Morissette, which is one of the best shows I've ever seen. Wow, I can I see mean, that. My yeah. uterus was just throbbing with power. <laughs> <laughs> it was 
was amazing. <laughs> she has a new album. Wonder if she'll tour after, well, after the pandemic, during at some point, because I don't know when this is going to end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's my Tori Amos entry. Moving right along. Next up, I've got Sheena Ringo, Muzai Moratorium. Came out in 1999. Um, amazing J-pop, J-rock artist, Sheena Ringo. It's really kind of hard to label her music. You could call it J-pop, but it incorporates so much more than that. There's jazz, punk rock, bossa nova, big band, electronics. She just she just does it all just in this big experimental palette and is completely unique from any other J-pop or J-rock music that I'd ever heard before. Have either of you heard of Sheena Ringo by any chance? Mm-mm, no. no. I think you might. I think you might be into it. Um, I would. I would recommend this album. This is her debut solo album, Muzai Moratorium, and it's definitely more of the rock album compared to the others. Um, but I think before I discovered her, I'd had a really two D concept of what modern J pop was. You know, it was just kind mm-hmm. of this ultra commercial bubblegum pop kind of thing, especially for women. And considering the landscape, it's it's really amazing that this bold, fearless, in-your-face, unapologetic woman could like come on the scene and make such an um, intense impact that has lasted for 20 years now. She's really, really cool. And she writes her own material, which was often questioned, <laughs> which I find really insulting. But she she just was this creative force, you know? Is um, that because of the the standard of that sort of... Yeah, yeah. It just wasn't typical industry there, yeah. for a pop artist or, I guess, female artist to be writing their own material, which is which is weird. And it's kind of sad that they questioned her on yeah. it so much. But she she had this really cool fusion sound I'd never experienced before in the context of whatever it is about Japanese popular music that already sounds so distinctive in our Western ears, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just a completely new frame for fusion and experimental rock music. That was really fascinating for me. Um, so she's really experimental. She doesn't sit in one genre for very long. She's big on themes in her albums. And while I can't say that I love all of it, I strongly believe that there's a little something for everybody in there. Yeah. I think I would recommend starting with my personal favorite song. It's called Ringo no Uta, which means Apple's song. Ringo means apple. And it's just a really lovely kind of like bossa nova, gentle groove. I think you should start with that one. But like the the album I've I've recommended, that's more of the rock album. She then kind of moves into this more pop and then like electronic space. And then she gets into this cool like jazz big band space. And you can you can hear the thread clearly shifting and changing. So I think if you sample some of her records, you'll find something that you like for sure. Sounds kind of like Bjork in a way, the progress of her career, I mean. Absolutely. And she credits Bjork as being one of her, her inspirations. Oh, that's cool. Well, then, yeah. then she's very smart. Well, well, since we're discussing being introduced to things, I wonder, h- how were you first introduced to Sheena Ringo? And also, how do you spell Sheena Ringo? <laughs> Sheena Ringo. So it can be S-H-I-I-N-A or S-H-E-E-N-A. Either way is okay. fine. And then All Ringo. Right, and then- R-I-N-G-O. Like Ringo. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. 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 But yeah, yeah. So, so like, where were you? Do you remember 
being introduced to this music for the first time. Because because being introduced to things from other countries in other languages, there's always like an extra little step there. It's not something that you're going to stumble upon yeah. just on the radio or, you know, at your local record store. That's really an interesting question. And I thought about this long and hard. I cannot pinpoint how I got to her. I'm right. sure I, you know, because I was listening to a lot of Japanese pop music. I'm sure I just sort of got recommended to her video at some point somehow. Mm. So I was already listening to a lot of like Utada Hikaru and like other very popular J-pop singers. And I must have just found, because I stumbled on this Ringo no Uta video first. That was the first encounter I've had with Sheena Ringo. So this is like a YouTube era? Is that where you I believe, would, probably would yeah, have found the video? I believe okay. it would have been a YouTube thing because I remember being really fixated on the music video particularly. Mm-hmm. And that that track came along much later. She already had uh, a few albums out. And the video is really cute because it goes through, she assumes kind of the, the alter egos and the characters from her previous records and her previous popular singles and music videos. So it kind of tells the story of her career up to that point. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure that's how that happened, just being on YouTube and surfing. I mean, the internet and YouTube in particular, I think really did open up the world of world music, um, mm-hmm. and not 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 like a tradition, yeah. like a traditional sense of world music, but like just the fact that if you hear something and you're like, you know, I wonder what that looks like. What what are Los Angeles Azules? What are they? You know, and you Google yeah. it, and you're like, oh, I see. You know, it's cumbia. I get it. <laughs> like right. you can just kind of like you hear something, you put a name to it, you see a picture of it, you see them moving in a video on YouTube, and suddenly like it all makes sense, and you can become a fan. Like, whereas if you just hear something and maybe you don't even see an album cover, maybe this is just something you like heard on NPR some night or something or, or your local, you know, college radio station, or, or maybe it's just like the theme song to your favorite anime. And you're just like, gosh, what is this? Mm-hmm. And you, you can't really separate TikTok. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. TikTok. Yeah, just like it's always like removed from the source. And I, I feel like people, when they can go down a YouTube rabbit hole, with a particular artist, they can really feel like they know more about them and understand them as as like a human being, more or less, rather than just kind of this amorphous sound in the air, you know? Yeah. Album covers too, I just realized. Because I remember the first Animal Collective album I ever owned was Sung Tongs. And the only thing I had to go by was the album cover, which is like, um, I believe it was drawn by Abby Portner, uh, um, Avi Ter's sister. And so it was like a skeletal looking man and a skeletal looking woman illustrations of these holding hands on the cover of the album. And because I only had the voices I could hear and the album cover, I, I was pretty sure there was a woman somewhere in the group and there wasn't. I was pretty sure there were only two people in the group. There were four. Like, like there's all these little things that you can't quite put together until you do have like a visual image. You know, it's like, oh, those are the band members. This is what they sound like. That's what they look like, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, it's, it, YouTube did definitely added something to the musical landscape of discovery. Yeah. Someone had to yeah. pick up where MTV left off. Oh, you're right. absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Now with the ads, it's just like old school television. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing has changed. But uh, yeah, my experience with Sheena Ringo, it was very much a tight marriage between the visual and the music because I was I was really obsessed with all her music videos um, for a long time. But she's she stopped releasing solo albums and she formed a band called Tokyo Jihen. It's also really super cool. And they've got this big theatrical, big band jazz thing going on. So if you if you check out... Sheena Ringo and you dig her sound, also check out Tokyo Jihan. Cool. 
Yeah. All right. We're almost there. Is this my last one? Yes. Number five. Atari Teenage Riot. Burn, Berlin, Burn. 1997. I love me some Atari Teenage Riot. They were another find from that MTV Amp compilation. <laughs> I discovered mm. so much from MTV's album compilations. It's it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Me um, too. Yeah. No, I remember um, the MTV Buzzbin volume something. Buzzbin! That's how I fell in love with Radiohead was because they really? had um, they had uh, Karma Police on one of their compilations. And it wasn't even the compilation. It was the television commercial for the compilation that they played just that little chorus snippet from like the, this is what you get when you mess with us. It was just that chunk in the commercial. And I was like, what is this band? And then I was like, oh, that's that, that's that creep band. Oh, the creep band is real cool now. I got to go track this down. (laughs) I haven't heard the words buzz bin in a million years. Right. You just- Unlocked a, a core memory for me. Remember when uh, videos were uh, buzzworthy? Remember that on MTV? Yeah. 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 They had that little like but logo in the MTV corner. Yeah. And it wasn't even just MTV compilations. And now we're taking a little bit away from your list, but <laughs> all comp- there were so many compilations in the 90s that were just stellar. Yeah. Uh, no alternative, DGC rarities. So many, mm-hmm. so many. It felt like it was a bigger commodity in a world pre-internet playlists because yeah. I think it is basically the same thing as an internet playlist. They were just harder to do. So you had to buy them. You basically had to buy a playlist one at a time in the olden days. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like me and my uh, Euro dance compilations with the commercials that would come on and I could only dance to the hook for five seconds. (laughs) Yeah. I I also remember um, this actually ties into something you said before about how like uh, about how um, Aphex Twin didn't just do the steady beat for the whole time. He mixed it up a lot. When those European dance compilation commercials would come on for these albums, my friends and I, we had like this running gag about how steady the uh, the the beat was throughout the entire commercial because every single like European electronic hit had the exact same BPM, the exact <laughs> sure. same steady beat. And so you, you could just like tap your foot and you could go straight through 15 songs yes. in the commercial <laughs> and you would never have to vary, vary once. It, it was became wild. its own song, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yes, yeah. But yeah, Atari Teenage Riot. So this this particular album, Burn, Berlin, Burn, it's a compilation made up of their two first studio albums, Delete Yourself and The Future of War. And it fortuitously has all my favorite, personal favorite tracks on this album. Um, it was released by Grand Royal, the Beastie Boys label. Mm, yeah. yeah. Which I think is quite an endorsement. Mike D himself certified this as, quote, the most punk rock shit ever. <laughs> it definitely is. It's super loud, so cool. fast, hostile, everything I love in my electronic music. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. <laughs> have you heard any Atari Teenage Riot? You do. Oh, uh, yeah, Either most I definitely. Have. Yeah. 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 yeah there. I have. Do you know what's funny? It's like, I know I have, but I can't right now remember, picture what it sounds like in my. In my head, I need to revisit. It's just a lot of screaming. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really noisy. Um, the music is super political. It's absolutely an open attack on the far right and neo-Nazi subcultures that were taking root in Germany. And just 
the overall state of rave culture at the time. They they put out some pretty controversial stuff. So if you're looking to go ham and scream and, and break some stuff, this is your soundtrack <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and I also Excellent. got to see them live in one of the most epic concert lineups of all time. It was Atari Teenage Riot, Rage Against the Machine, and the Wu-Tang Clan. Whoa! Oh, wow. Who was the headliner? I, you know what? They didn't really... They didn't really like name a headliner, but it was the Wu-Tang Clan because they played last. Right, um, right. I can't believe my parents let me go to that. This is what I'm saying. Parents don't know. Like, mom, yeah. can I go see Atari Teenage Rush? Like, yeah, whatever. Be home by whatever. <laughs> I'm like, great. <laughs> yeah. The word teenager is in the middle. You're fine. Right. Yeah. Atari. <laughs> Atari's in there. We have an Atari. It's harmless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was, uh, was uh, ODB still alive for the show? He was not, sadly. Oh. Yeah, and I, because I, I've I've seen them before too uh, in Portland when I was living there, and of course it was well after ODB had moved on uh, from our, our our sad little planet. And um, gosh, I I I wonder what that would have been like because um, he was always the wild card, you know. He was always yeah. the one that that was going. There, there, there's no father to his style. He he was he was going yeah, to yeah. make a mess up there on stage, and you were going to watch it. And um, I don't know, it, it felt much tamer and much more by the book when I saw them because they they were getting up there. I think this was like 2007, maybe something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So they were they were already like, I don't want to say they were done, but they were already established. They, they weren't scrappy anymore, you know? Right, right. Yeah. yeah I mean, just despite the fact that ODB wasn't there, I was just still happy that the entire crew was there. Like right. that in itself was pretty rare, but everybody like the, was the there representing. The rest of the members were there. Yeah, the rest yeah. of the members were there. We rushed the stage. I was on someone's shoulders, and Method Man dumped his water bottle all over me, and it was awesome. Really <laughs> you know, that's funny. The um, the show I was at, Method Man, he, he's a rascal. Um, the thing he kept doing, <laughs> uh, he kept telling people not to put their hands on the stage. Like that was his thing. He's like, you don't touch the stage. This is my stage. And if anyone put their hands on the stage for any reason whatsoever, he would immediately just go stand on their hands. It was amazing. <laughs> well, that's oh one gosh. way to learn. Yeah. 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 It was, it was, it was great. It, this was also a New Year's Eve show. Yeah, so it was it was wild. It was a wild yeah. show, but but no, but that, that that's an amazing lineup. So yeah, all, all three people with a very strong uh, sound, uh, a good political bend to all their messaging and whatnot, and mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. that just cranked out some fucking bangers too. Like all all three of those groups. That's that's a powerful evening, you know. Yeah, it was high energy from start to finish. I gotta say, it was great for sure. I bet you were exhausted by the end of it, like both with like- <laughs> Or ready to rage, one or the other. Yeah, probably a bit of both, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's so, that's my list. So was that, you said that was number five, but was that the top or the bottom of your list? Oh, yeah. You know, I'm terrible at putting things in order. <laughs> awful. It just is what it is. <laughs> just a list. Yeah, it's just a list. <laughs> just a list. Well, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of your choices kind of were similar in the way that they all kind of bring in elements of of many genres. Yeah. To make their own. Yeah. Yeah. Lots lots of combinations of genres to make bigger mm. genres. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of really daring, yeah. daring people who were coloring outside the lines, for sure. Yeah. Actually, all of your people definitely coloring outside of the lines, for sure. Hmm. 
I, I wonder if that will be a reoccurring like thing because yeah. like, because if you think about it, if you're going to do something new, you have to color outside of the lines. That's true. So yeah, I, I wonder if that will be common between all 15 of our eventual picks. Hmm. Yeah. That's true. That's very true. Cool. Well, I guess uh, maybe let's take a little smoke break or something, coffee break, tea break, water break, and then we'll and then we'll come back in here. Seth's list. All right, we're back from our break, and we're talking about top five albums that introduce you to something new in music. And it's Seth's turn. Yes, I'm very excited. I've gone around the store. I've gathered up all my records. Uh, this first one I'm going to put on is my number five. This is from uh, 1979. The album is Einstein on the Beach, and this is by Philip Glass. So I was introduced to this um, in a pretty standard way, but it's weird that like I was surprised at the time, and I'm even more surprised in the future that this class even existed. When I was in high school, I learned about Philip Glass in a classical music appreciation class. Isn't that odd that like a, a high school would offer that? It's pretty special. Yeah, I'm jealous. I wish my high school had something like that. And that my teacher took the time to introduce Philip Glass to us. You know what I yeah. mean? Because like, mm -hmm. if, if they just teach like Bach, Beethoven, you know, Mozart, Handel, all that kind of stuff, then that's like the standard. Like, hey, here's your Chopin. You know, this is here's this, this is mm -hmm. the stuff that you you would of course expect to hear. But no, that like. It happened two times. He introduced the class to um, Philip Glass two ways. Uh, one, he showed the closing sequence of Koyana Skatsi, the um, Philip Glass oh. and Godfrey Reggio movie. The part where like mm -hmm. the space shuttle piece is just kind of falling to earth for like 15 minutes. And there's just like a perpetual arpeggio of Philip Glass being Philip Glass. That was already like mind-blowing enough. And then the, um, the final uh, test in this class was... Um, the instructor, his name was Mr. Massione, he would play um, part of a song and we had to identify, I believe it was what era, the artist and the name of the song, basically. Like, you know, pretty standard, but that that that's that was the the, the, the the key. So he made these like study CDs where he would play, you know, a little snippet of each thing along with that information. So you could kind of like flashcards, teach yourself. And the song that was on there for Philip Glass, okay, it was um, Act Four, Scene Three, Spaceship from Einstein on the Beach. And it was just brand new to my ears. The fact that someone could make something so original and so daring and so experimental within the world of classical music was a brand new concept to my little high school ears. Like that was just like, what is it? Like, you can't do that. No one's ever done that before. You're the first Philip Glass, you know? And, and that's the way it felt to me. It felt like this one guy, Philip Glass, had figured out this genius idea of making something new with quote unquote classical instrumentation and classical music. And it, yeah, it was brand new to me and it really blew my mind and it shook me up and I, I had to go hunt down all the Philip Glass I could for for the rest of my life, because I've I've never stopped hunting down new Philip Glass because he makes so much. That's really cool. I mean, that's an incredible 
story to be introduced to Philip Glass at such a young age. I mean, all thanks goes to that teacher, Mr. Massione, Gonzaga yeah, Preparatory. I mean, Thank you, Mr. Massione. That's so cool. I can't even think of anything similar to that that I was exposed to in that similar age range, except for maybe like something stupid like the um, Jurassic Park right. theme song. Right, right. <laughs> I had that cassette, yeah. It's <laughs> not similar at all, but it's classical music. <laughs> it makes you think about those those moments where like an adult or a, an authority figure came in and, and dropped something really major on you. They maybe they didn't think mm-hmm. it would be that impactful, but it just like unlocked this whole new realm for you and, and gave you so much time to explore and like especially in your formative years, I'm sure that really shaped yeah. um a lot of your musical tastes at the time. Like that's that's really cool. I bet so. Yeah. No, it's, it's as an adult, I thank that teacher for, for not just teaching that class to a bunch of high school kids, but also to make sure that he included some avant-garde further out there stuff just to let you know that it was there. Maybe he didn't even like it. Who knows? Maybe he hates Philip Glass, but he still took the time to teach these kids that Philip Glass is out there that, you know, and then that would lead me to, you know, Stephen Reich, that would lead me to um, uh, Terry Riley, that would lead me to Sarah Neufeld, that would lead me to, you know, Patricia Brennan, you know what I mean? Like, like it's, it's, it's just yeah. that train that leads you from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And it's wonderful. Then you, you get some Nico Muley and you're, and you're all caught up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the new class. Yeah. I bet he would say thank you to you as well for being open-minded as a young person to, to be open to something like that instead of, Oh, it's, you know, Backstreet Boys or <laughs> I don't know, something, whatever is on the pop radio. Right. You know, so probably would, I, I bet say thanks to you for having an open mind. That's really cool. Well, my number four kind of leads into it. You want to hear my number four too? Yeah. All right. The year is 1968. I was not alive yet, but this is switched on Bach by Wendy Carlos. This is the only record from my parents' record collection that I still listen to regularly. Um, They didn't have a huge record collection. I mean, I think it was probably a dozen records. I think they told me later on, they were like, oh yeah, we have all kinds of stuff, you know, some Beatles or whatever. And I'm like, you guys don't have any Beatles? (laughs) Like you guys must have like either sold them or never had them because they had like, I'm going to say it was like one Jefferson Starship album one Eric Clapton album, uh, one Wendy Carlos album, um, a guy named like Leo Kotke who does like kind of like acoustic guitar-y type stuff, um, and like a uh, Muppets meet John Denver album. Like, like <laughs> I think that's about it. Like those, th- th- those are the only records I remember from their collection. And of course, when I got my first record player, those were the first records that I scooped up so I could listen to them as much as I wanted. And the, cause they hadn't had a record player in years. They had a record player when I was a child, child. And then they had gone the way of a cassette player and a CD as those new technologies came around. But, but yeah, this, this record and particularly the sound of that Moog synthesizer was just like, wow, this is, this is science fiction. And despite the fact that, so yeah, I mean, I, I was coming up in the eighties and so it was already like 20 years old by the time I was listening to it, you know? And yet 
1968, that sound of the future still sounded futuristic in 1988. It oh, still sounded yeah. like it, it was the greatest. And then that also um, led me to, I'm sure this was influential Around the same time, if anyone went to Disneyland, they could see uh, the Main Street Electrical Parade, which the entire score was also a Moog synthesizer-based thing. And I like they're always linked in my mind, and all pure Moog synthesizer sounds are always all linked in my mind. And um, <laughs> Wendy Carlos is just the fucking coolest. She's the greatest. Follow her career, and it's 100% pure greatness. Yeah, agreed. That is, again, another cool one. And also... What the like the fact that your parents have that had that record? Mm-hmm. That's a cool thing. But also, I'm just looking here that it reached number ten on the Billboard charts. Yeah, right. I just it's so hard for me to wrap my brain around anything that cool making it that high on any Billboard chart. <laughs> it, it must have really made a splash at the time. I mean, obviously, I guess so. yeah. I mean, yeah. none of us were alive in 1968, but right. um. I guess just hearing that new noise must have felt really, really cool at the time. And and like I said, 20 years later, when I was a child listening to it, it still felt really fucking cool. So I don't know. It's good stuff. Have you by any chance seen the documentary Sisters with Transistors? No. What's it about? So I love watching little documentaries and interviews with these amazing uh, women pioneers in electronic music. But mm-hmm. in 2021, there was a full-on documentary about all of these women um, that came out called Sisters with Transistors. And I think it was like a, a streaming or maybe a film festival kind of thing. I don't know if you can just watch it online, but it was released last summer. And it features Wendy mm. Carlos, among many others. So you should see if there's a way to nice. watch that. Think, yeah. yeah, I think it's streaming, actually, because it's on my list of things to watch. And I almost watched it recently, but I think I went with something else or either didn't watch anything at all because it's hard for me to pay attention to movies right now. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely on my list of things to watch. It it seems yeah. really cool. Yeah. I, I read the 33 and a third book about um, Switched on Bach. And yeah, there, there was a lot in there about this history of specifically women being involved in the electronic movement. And then adding another layer on top of that, there's also a a very strong history of trans women being involved with electronic everything. And yeah, it's all really fascinating. If if anyone here that can hear our voice in this record store, I I recommend they look into all these things because it's it's fucking amazing, all of it. Are you guys ready for my number three? Bring it on. This one's going to get weird because this <laughs> is less about the music itself and more about me discovering a new like access point to music, okay? So the year is 1999. The album is Beautiful Midnight and the artist is the Matthew Good Band. So me whatever puts me on. First of all, have either of you ever heard of the Matthew Good Band or this album? I have not. No. I would not expect you to because neither of you are Canadian. <laughs> so when I was younger, um, you know, just like I am now, I, I'm I'm very greedy for music. I want to hear all the music all the time. I just want to know 
every every single thing. I, I want to hear every song just so I'll know if I like it or not. You know, I, I want it all. And so um, I wasn't um, satiated with just watching MTV. So I watched VH1. VH1 wasn't enough. So I had to keep looking. And on my parents' satellite dish provider, they had much music. Much music, I'm sure most people out in the world know, is like the Canadian MTV. And um, I don't even know if it's around anymore. I, I haven't had a satellite dish in a while. But when I was growing up, much music was how I got my access to what the Canadians were up to musically. And I remember this one time I was watching the Much Music Top 10 Countdown and number one was this song, uh, Load Me Up by Matthew Goodband. And that song, Load Me Up, it's honestly, if you just picture in your mind a 1999 song that would appeal to a teenage boy, that's what it sounds like. It's 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 not that it's bad. I think it's 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 a fine song, but it's not. there's nothing extraordinary about it. What it introduced me to was this is, I think, the first time I heard a song and I was like, oh, I like this. I'm going to go get this. So I went down to the store and I was like, may I have this, please? And they're like, no, 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 no. And at this point, I had already like done that thing with like a record store where you're like, oh, well, order me a copy and I'll buy it from you when it arrives, you know, that that kind of thing. And so I did that. I was like, oh, well, if you don't have any, can you please order me one and I'll, I'll buy it? And they're like, oh, no, this like isn't even in our books. This is some Canadian thing. Like, we have no way of getting this for you. So I went to Amazon.ca in 1999. And wow. it, it was like this whole thing of like trying to find this album that wasn't in America and getting it and listening to it. And it felt extremely special to me because I was like, I had to put in a lot of effort to get this. I am the only one listening to this in my entire, like, you know, continuous 48 states. And I'm sure that's not the case. I'm sure there were plenty of other Americans listening to it at the time. And it, it, it introduced me to the idea that if I wanted something, I had to go get it. Like, like things that were just available for me, whether they were on my record store shelves or on the radio or on MTV, it wasn't going to be enough. There was a lot more past that and I had to go get it. And so, this, yeah, this was my very first album I ever imported. And um, it was also important to me because this album, it, I think it took about three years. I think it was like 2002 before it finally came out in America. And the the, the uh, track listing was entirely different. I mean, entirely different. They basically oh, turned this album into like almost like a greatest hits that compiled like a bunch of like older tracks from older albums because this was like the first one of their albums to, to be like released in America eventually. And so when I saw that, like three years later, I was just like, "Yeah, I got, I, I got the real one. I'm fine, you know. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't need this American <laughs> remake, re-release bullshit. I've, I've got the real, the genuine real article from 1999, two years ago, you know. And um, yeah, it, 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 it taught me that lesson. It taught me that lesson that I needed to go to Amazon.co.uk. I needed to go to Amazon.co.jp. I needed to like find these things. And of course, now I can go to places other than just Amazon companies. But back then, that was my primary yeah, source. The cast or wider net back then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But Natalie had a similar story, right? With my Tika album. <laughs> yeah. 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 Tika. Yeah. When I started shopping on Japanese sites, which was a lot more difficult because I couldn't read Japanese. Yet I made it happen. Yeah. 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 It's funny. And you were never quite sure how much you were really paying right. for it. You assumed it was too much. Right. <laughs> right. Especially the way the, the numbers look in yen, it makes it seem like a really exorbitant amount of money. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you bring up Much Music because I, I remember watching Much Music and I have not thought about that channel until you brought it up just now. It's been ages. <laughs> I remember like... Another core memory on Right. <laughs> like I remember some of their, their VJs, like that guy, um, Rick Campanelli with all that luscious flowing oh, blonde yeah. hair. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so funny too. Like whenever those moments happen to me where um, something you haven't thought about in a billion years just gets brought up in your mind and it's right there and it's vivid. You think, gosh, how much else is in my brain right now that I can't yeah. access, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's wild. Uh, we also had a giant satellite and it, it had much music, but didn't have MTV. I didn't have MTV, but much music I could get sometime. Wow. Okay. Okay. Cool. Didn't have MTV. That's crazy. It was like my whole life was watching MTV. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I could only really watch if I went to a friend's or if I, like, fam- other family members. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Wonder how much that's worth now. Um, I don't know. I should, I should check Discogs. Oh, you know yeah, what, so- though? But it was really popular in Canada. It was number one on much music. So I bet, like, the Canadian copy is worth, like, nothing because everyone in Canada <laughs> had it, you know? Huh. Yeah. Interesting. You should still check. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what, which album was that again? Uh, it's called Beautiful Midnight. I'm sure it's worth almost nothing, I bet. Especially, oh man, hot tip to anyone here in this record store. Go buy CDs, people. People think CDs are garbage now. You can make out like a bandit. <laughs> Go to your used mm-hmm. record stores. Drop a dollar. You're leaving with five CDs. That's true. It's great. The, the, this, is the, this is the way it is. Seth, don't tell everyone. You don't want, you don't want people buying your CDs? <laughs> no, I want them all for myself. Oh, yeah. Fair. I'm I've, just I've, I've also, another hot tip for people, I've been uh, utilizing my uh, local library's CD se- section a lot lately. Oh, it's been well, that's great. Smart. Like they have, have some. You've been burning them? Oh, I don't burn them. Digital but, copies? But making digital copies, 100%. Yes. Yeah. Um, and um, like, like, get this. Like, my local library is my first time going through their CD section. They had some fucking shoo shoo. They had some fucking Stormzy. They had some fucking like, um, let's see here. Wow. They had some Deer Hoof. <laughs> they had some Charlie XCX. Nice. Like, wow. So they, yeah, they're stocks. updating their. They had some contemporary CD stuff. catalog pretty regularly. Wow. Uh, what, 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 what led me there was on their employee recommendation shelf of the people who worked at the library. Someone had an OCs album just sitting out in their little section. And I was like, Oh shit, I'll take that OCs album. And then I was like, wait, if they have, if they have this new OCs album that came out like last year, what else do they have? Yeah. So I checked out like 20 CDs just last week and um, it was great. And then, all right, I'm sorry. I'm going on tangent on tangent here. Then that led me to this website, which I'm sure a lot of people already know about, but I didn't. It's called Freegal. Freegal stands for free and legal. And it's a music downloading service set up through your library card. Oh, wow. So for example, um, I, um, so yeah, I, I, I live uh, on the Kitsap Peninsula. It's a peninsula west of Seattle. So the Kitsap Regional Library, I go to through their website and then it goes to their website, the Freegal website, and you get to download music for free, listen to things for free and all that stuff. It's great. Oh, so anyway, 
you always got to hunt for where this stuff is. And you especially always hunt where people aren't looking. Because if people are looking there, they're going to charge you $40 for a record. And that's sad. No one's got $40 for a record. We're all poor people in this world. Come on. This is is a game changer, man. Regal. And they've got K-pop. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They've they've got some wild deep cuts. Um, Yeah. There, there's limitations, like, like you are limited on how many uh, downloads you can do a week, and that depends on your region, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I, I, I recommend people go get yourself a library card, visit your local library, and get lots and lots of CDs, and check them out, and do whatever you want to do with those CDs, Sweet. and then return them so other people can do the same. That's cool. Thanks for the pro tip. Are you guys ready for my number two? Yes. This is the first one that I think is going to overlap with Natalie's. Like I, I, I felt a lot of like introductions to a lot of different electronic genres happening in, in Natalie's list. This one was mine for that. Uh, the year is 1998. The album is Science Fiction, and it's by Uncle. So, so Uncle, if folks don't know, it's at least at this point, the lineup's actually changed quite a bit. But at this point, it was James Lavelle and DJ Shadow. That's who Uncle was back then. And um, I was a huge Radiohead fan at the time, still am. And the music video that Jonathan Glazer made for Rabbit in Your Headlights was so fucking cool. Do you guys remember this music video? Yes. Yeah. And that video, I was just like, oh man, this is just like it's like a relative of Karma Police because it's the same music video director. You got those Tom York vocals. Like this is mm-hmm. so fucking cool. And like the video was so neat because like the music was like happening like almost in the background and they're all like the sound effects of like the cars whizzing by and you could hear the guy mumbling to himself before he gets hit by the car. And like, it's like, it's like a surprise twist ending. If people haven't seen it before, make sure you watch it. It's great. But anyway- I was basically just under the impression that this was just like a new Radiohead song. I it's it called it Uncle, but I was like, fine, I'll go just buy this Radiohead album that they're calling Uncle for some reason. I don't know. So I bought it, and clearly this song was great that I've heard many times because of the music video, but the rest of it was great too. And that's what introduced me to DJ Shadow. And that's what introduced me to like liking electronic music, not that was unlike other stuff I had heard, you know, like, 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 like I, I don't like the term IDM cause it just feels a bit cringy to call anything intelligent, you know, but it was that IDM sound. It was that sound of like people putting a little extra effort and energy into their, into their electronica that was meant for something more than just the dance floor. We're like, Hey, you could dance to this if you wanted to, but you could just as easily put on your headphones and like zone out in your bedroom while listening to it, you know? So I, I thank Uncle for that. Yeah. This is one that I saw on either it was Subterranean or Amp. Right. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. both. Because it would fit into both Maybe of those both. categories. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a really good pick. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that as well because DJ Shadows introducing was on my short list. Oh yeah. So Uncle introduced me to introducing right. and Man, that's a great Absolutely. album. And there, there's that one track, I wish I could remember the name of it, where he samples Bjork. And fuck, that part's so fucking cool. <laughs> Bjork's the greatest. That's just something that needs to be she said is. all the time out loud. Yeah. There's also one other thing you haven't said yet, and I'm wondering if it will ever come up. It might not, because I'm about to hit my number one. You want to hear what my number one is? 
Yeah. All right. He's my number one. Then you can tell me what I missed because I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's out there. My number one, the year was 1983. The album is Yip Jump Music, and it's by Daniel Johnston. He was hoping to close and then he fell. Now he's Casper the Friendly Ghost. So basically, Daniel Johnston introduced me to the whole idea of lo-fi music. Like, I had never heard anything lo-fi before him. Um, I'm sure it existed, but, you know, even to this date, I can't really think of anything that predated him that really put that that lo-fi sound out there in the world intentionally, you know? Because like- Those uh, Sun Records studio, like just so not professionally produced, even though they were recorded in a studio, sounds lo-fi as hell. Right. That, that's, I was watching the movie Kids and in the movie Kids, there's this scene where um, all of the kids, the titular kids, they got in a fight with this guy in Central Park because they were skateboarding too close to him or whatever. And this gang of children beat this man. You assume he's dead by the end of it, but you don't know. You know, the movie just keeps going because that's how little they care about that plot point. And while this horribly graphic scene is taking place uh, of, of a man being beaten supposedly to death, who knows? In the background is Daniel Johnston singing um, Casper the Friendly Ghost. And like the song is so light and juvenile and silly and lo-fi and weird, but also very catchy and very like, you know, it's, it's got a real hook to it. And it's just I, like the whole time I'm just confused. <laughs> like my little brain is just like, wait, why is any of this happening? What is this? Who is this? And then I had to like track down the kids soundtrack and I found out it was Daniel Johnston. I knew nothing about who he was. Then I had to like go find his albums. Then I had to like do research about who he was and then that was interesting. And then that led me to like the Moldy Peaches and that led me to, you know, uh, Jeffrey Lewis. That led me to uh, Diane Cluck, et cetera, et cetera. So Daniel Johnston really kicked off this whole idea of lo-fi being intentional and good. And uh, also just for like myself as a musician, I always embraced that ethos as soon as I could, you know, get my head around it of just like, nah, fuck it, anti-folk. Like just fucking do it. Just just make the noise. And if it's a good noise and you're doing it on purpose, then it's finished, you know? And I I, I, I still to this day love that idea and that ethos. So Yeah. Daniel Johnston, way to go. Also another really great documentary too. Yes, The Devil and Daniel Johnston. Oof, yeah. So good, yeah. I'm going to have to check this out. This is this is kind of new to me. Have you ever seen Kids? I have seen Kids. I feel like I tried to block it out because it was disturbing. Yes. Um, it's so disturbing. <laughs> if anyone's overhearing our discussion right now, I don't necessarily recommend that film to everyone because yeah. it's pretty fucked up. I don't up. know if I need to yeah, relive yeah. that, but I have watched it. But I will listen to the music. Uh, yeah, if, if I were you, yeah. Natalie, I would recommend watching the documentary "The Devil and Daniel Johnston," okay. and that would probably be the world's best primer to getting into Daniel Johnston because it'll it'll give you like the whole story, top to bottom, mm-hmm. and you'll really understand this man. It'll, it, yeah, it's it's a great that movie. That is my homework. Or you'll at least get closer to understanding <laughs> right. this man. <laughs> I'm just uh, I'm yeah. just checking him out here on the. Uh, company computer. And he was also a mm-hmm. prolific artist. Did you know this? Oh, yeah, yes. He, Beautiful yeah, art. Yeah, this is yeah. really cool. And he had a, a big um, exhibit last year of 179 of his never before seen artworks. 
That's neat. Uh, the, yeah, the the, the, uh, the the man also died recently yeah. too. Yeah. So R.I.P. Daniel Johnston. He uh, he will be missed. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Awesome list. Thank you. Yeah, it is a good list. It is Traverse fun. many diverse areas of music. Now, Tara, where did you think I was going to go? But I oh, didn't. I was just saying, you know, there's the one thing. You always say that we should get a little bit of, and I was wondering if by chance it would be in your number one, but it wasn't. I was just going to say a little nod to uh, John Bryan. (sighs) I do love John Bryan. Um, (laughs) John Bryan is very important. I love you, John Bryan. Fuck you, John Bryan. But, (laughs) but. (laughs) Just like old times. No, no, he, he did not make, he did not make this specific list. Yeah. Right, right. I think I told you this already. We were talking about Evan Dando Mm. recently in the store and he produced Evan Dando's solo album, Baby I'm Bored. I'm like, fuck you, John Bryan. Yeah, no. (laughs) First set. It's it's important to always remember John Bryan, how important he is. Um, uh, recently, if if, if folks uh, around this record store don't know, I, I host a podcast uh, called Rusty Needles Record Club. And we recently did an episode about... Um, uh, let's see, Circles, that um, that Mac Miller album, which John Bryan not only produced, but he also finished it up after uh, Mac oh, Miller right. sadly died. So there is like extra John Bryan on that album because he actually literally had to finish it. He had to play a bunch of the instruments that weren't recorded yet. He had to finish the production on a bunch of songs that weren't done yet. So you can really hear the John Bryan on Circles. And um, yeah, it, it's another one of those situations. You have to give John Bryan credit because he's a fucking genius and everything he touches <laughs> is gold. But also, don't forget to say fuck you, John Bryan, because it's also important to remember <laughs> that Mac Miller wrote those songs and that he would have made that album with or without John Bryan. So, you know, you don't, you don't want to give too much credit to John Bryan, right, right. but you have to remember how great he is. It's, right. it's, 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 it's both. It's both. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to need some backstory on that uh, fuck you, John Bryan things at some point <laughs> so I can understand it. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well maybe give the, do you want to give the back? Sure. Back I mean, I mean, basically it's, it's more or less what I just explained, but it's like, like think about someone like Fiona Apple. Fiona Apple, when she released When the Pawn, a lot of people just wanted to give John Bryan all the credit for that album because like, oh, look at John Bryan, you know? Yeah, he worked with Amy Mann before. Now he's working with Fiona Apple. He's just making these people release great albums. And it's like, well, yeah, John Bryan's great, but right. Fiona <laughs> Apple made this album. I see. You know, yeah. I mean, Bjork has had the same problem her entire career where anyone Bjork collaborates with, especially if it's a man, the man gets the credit like every single time. And um, even most recently, um, gosh, no, I don't want to go into all this, but you you, you can go through the history of it. And it, it's, it's every single time a, a, a great female artist gets involved with a male producer. The male producer will get the credits. Um, look at um, MIA with Diplo. People thought that MIA was nothing. She was just Diplo's girlfriend. And then she oh, had to please. continue on her career and prove she can do so much more without him. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck you, Diplo. She, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get it now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, nice. That was, a, that was a great list though, for real. I mean, especially blown away by that Philip Glass one. Man. And such a good album. If if and if no one's ever gotten into avant opera before, listen to Einstein on the Beach from top to bottom. You're gonna have a fun fucking time. It's so good, so so good. Uh, do we need another break, or do we want to just jump right into my list? It's up to you. It's your list. 
Do you need a break? I don't need a break. Do you need a break? I don't need a break. Natalie, do you need a break? Let's power through. All right. Let's just, let's just go. Go for it. Right into it. All right. Starting off. Number five. R.L. Burnside, Wish I Was in Heaven, Sitting Down from 2000. Mississippi-born blues guitarist, Mm -hmm. singer. The first time I heard this particular song, the song is called Hard Time Killing Floor, which is originally written by Skip James. I was in a thrift store, not a thrift store, like a vintage shop. And this came on and I was just really kind of floored at just how sad it sounded, number one, but it had these kind of trip hoppy elements in a way. So yeah, it just kind of, stuck with me. And then I had to, because we didn't have Shazam at the time. So I had to go up to the counter and ask what it was. And they actually had the the CD playing there. But it, yeah, it's, it's just so, it's like a low down blues. Just, he has such a ghostly voice, um, like one from the past. And we sound very sad. The guitar's sounds like very weepy and sad. And I actually don't, I think he was ill at the time that this came out and didn't get to play guitar on the album because he was ill. So it was someone else. Um, But yeah, it's just the music is tinged with something just a little bit extra. And it was like, I'd never heard that combo of sounds before, like a blues with electronic, Uh, except for like Moby. Yeah. That was, I think, after. Why does my heart feel so bad? Maybe that was after. Mm-hmm. But yeah, have you have you heard this song, Hard Time Killing Floor from Wish I Was In Heaven Sending Down? I have. I, f- I feel like this came up before in a list, but I can't oh. for the life of me remember it. But I definitely remember listening to it because you recommended it. And um, it is, it's beautiful. And honestly, when I listen to it, I have a hard time figuring out what's sampled What's new? Yeah. What's what's old? What's new? What's like it, it's it, it, fe- yeah. it feels like kind of like a head scramble. You aren't really sure what's happening and where. Mm-hmm. But it's great. Yeah. But it's really great. It's good. Natalie, have you heard R.L. Burnside? Yeah. I have. I have not. I feel like I may have heard this name before, but I'm not familiar with the music. But the way you're describing it, it, it sounds like something I need to listen to. Yeah, it's very cool. I'm absolutely curious, but you you also touched on something something interesting, uh, an important access point for discovering new music and getting that magical feeling again. Just roaming around a random retail store, yeah. yeah. So many times I've had to go to the counter and say, "What are you playing?" Right. You know. Yeah. I do miss that. Yeah. 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 Wait, you miss it from the point of like pandemic, staying at home, or from the point of going places and not having Shazam and hearing music and asking about it. I would say pandemic. Like, uh, I, I definitely don't go retail shopping anywhere near as much as I used to. And, and uh, gotcha. also because I live so much more rurally as well. But um, but no, no, no. Yeah, I, 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 I haven't experienced that. Ooh, what are you playing in a long yeah. time? Yeah, yeah. 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 And I would say even like pre-pandemic, I think the... The heyday of the American shopping mall has been over for quite a while now. Yeah. Um, so just, you know, far fewer opportunities to, to have those experiences. Although I can say yeah. this, which is actually really cool. I just experienced this last week. 
Um, as we all know, most American shopping malls are dead. You know, you go into them and it's just like a weird, like ghost town. It's, you know, kind of scary in kind of a odd way, <laughs> you know? And, um, because the retail space rents so inexpensively inside a mall now, all kinds of businesses are taking advantage of that, including some really good independent record stores. I was just inside one the other day called Vinyl Injection that was so hidden inside this dead mall. You would never know it was there unless you found out from someone else. And it was so cool. They had a really great selection. Um, and uh, I was really, really happy that I hope that becomes a trend. I, I, I hope more small independent businesses think to themselves, hey, rent is cheap as hell in malls right now because they are fucking ghost towns full of nobodies. Let's take advantage of that. Keep our overhead low and just mm -hmm. weird businesses inside these stores, inside these malls, you know? And um, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm saying to folks, they should go check that out. <laughs> go, go check out your That's dead cool. malls. <laughs> See if there's any uh, new independent record stores that have snuck in there and set up shop. Cool. I don't know of any malls even nearby. Yeah. Um, that's that's a good that's a good um way to sort of keep that giant, usually giant space occupied. So it's not just using land. Yeah. All right. Number four is also from the year two thousand. From the year two thousand <laughs> broadcast. <laughs> the noise made by people. Uh, Indie Electronic Band from England. First time I heard this, I just felt like, whoa, is this old or new? Yeah. Again, oh, I guess it's kind of similar to R.L. Burnside. Mm -hmm. But yeah, is this, is this old or new? And it just sounded so, it was new, but it sounded so old. It was what I like to call, and I don't even know if this is like a real genre term. I, I call it this because it makes sense. Retro futurism. Right, yeah. It's like, you know, those like very mod, spaceship looking, furniture, lounge. That's what they thought future looked like. That's what they thought spaceships would look like. That's what the vibe would, you'd be sitting in this lounge listening to broadcast. But Trish, Trish's voice paired with that sort of like analog synth sound to make it kind of sound like it's from the like 60s psychedelic pop, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's not. It's mm -hmm. from the 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. And then they became one of my favorite bands of all time. Definitely. I mean, they had it in every regard. I mean, uh, Trish's voice was just fucking perfect. And then musically, so they good. wrote great songs as a band. Everything was so tight. Like, there, you can't really say a bad thing about broadcast. Broadcast is is really it, you know? Yeah. I traded someone a White Stripe CD for this particular album, and I think that's like the best trade ever made <laughs> in history. Can you name like another another band to kind of like put me in the mood, like feel similar to Broadcast? Um, yeah, newbies? maybe Stereo Lab or okay. even like Air mm, a little bit. Yeah. From Moon Safari or Premiere or Symptoms, I can't. Yeah, we're I probably would that. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Did that help? 
Yeah, for sure. Stereo lab <laughs> yeah, helped. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Did I confuse even more? Yeah, no. It's, yeah, it just, it sounds old, but it's not. And for me, that that was just like kind of like a, whoa, what is this moment? Is it new in music? No, but it was new to me and it it, it definitely made a mark. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and I think that's important too, is like, the combination of sounds creates something new, you know, just like every aspect of everything, just like, you know, painting or, you know, food or anything, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the fusion of old things makes new things, you know, like, um, think about hyper pop, you know, the whole like 100 gex PC music kind of thing that's been happening for the past few years now. Mm-hmm. When that came out, it wasn't a new sound. I mean, it was 100% based in like pop structures. What they had done is just taken something that we were all used to and replaced everything comforting with something kind of agitating, something kind of caustic, something kind of painful. And and so it's like it's like, "Oh yeah, this isn't new, but you're giving it to me in a new way." So, it's new neat, <laughs> you know? Thanks. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think we've touched on that a few times in this, in this list game too. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Apex twin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, switched on Bach is fucking Bach. <laughs> <laughs> like that's about as old as it gets, but you, Wendy Carlos throws a, a Moog on it and bam. You get, she switched it on. I'm switching on them. Your number, your number 10 on yeah. the billboard charts. You did it, you know? Boom. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's such a good point. Cool. Are we ready for my number three? Sure, sure. My Bloody Valentine, Loveless from 1991. What a sound. Like that's, that's a new sound. Yeah. First time anyone hears My Bloody Valentine, you, you're, you're, you got to sit down, you know? Exactly. I mean, I I think of this, like when I hear that first track out of the gate, only shallow, it like wallops you upside the head. It's so, it must be played loud. You should play it loud. It's, it's almost like it's, you know, Phil Spector's wall of sound has nothing on my bloody Valentine's wall of sound. Right. Like, yeah, if, if Phil Spector was a wall of sound, then this is like a tsunami of sound, you know, like it's, It's so big and so powerful. And you're right. I think if you tried to listen to Loveless quietly, it would sound like nothing to you. You need to play it loudly just to hear yeah. everything that's happening in that mix. It's, it's what a great trick. Yeah. And then on top of that, you have Belinda Butcher's very soft vocals mm-hmm. that's pressed up against these like whirring or should I say gliding tremolo guitars? Yeah, it's it's crazy. For sure. I love it. What's the it best track mind. on the album? Your opinion? I don't know. Gosh. Probably only shallow in my, maybe, I don't know. They're all so good. I can't pick one. <laughs> it all goes together really well. Yeah. And then on top of that, Kevin Shields was experimenting he was basically making this new guitar sound. So I definitely think this was new in music, but also new to me. Mm-hmm. And he was using these like wildly meticulous production methods. And I think it cost them a ton of money, but totally worth it because now it's, you know, yeah. a legendary album. Definitely. And and I also wonder, I always have a hard time kind of like putting together in my brain 
people who did legendary amazing things and people who were compensated for doing legendary amazing things. Like, do you think Kevin Shields ever made like a fair amount of money off of Loveless? Like, did it ever sell even, did it ever even go gold, let alone platinum? You know, like, I don't, I don't know. Are you pulling it up on the work computer? Yes. Nice, nice. I am pulling it up on the work computer. I'll be computer. curious to know. Cause because I'm I'm always surprised. Whenever there are these like legendary albums, like, oh, the Velvet Underground and Nico or whatever, it's always sold so many fewer copies than I ever thought it did. You know? Like it's it's always surprising. Yeah. Okay. This says in 2003, Rolling Stone estimated that Loveless had sold only 225,000 copies. Exactly. So that's exactly my point. So I don't believe that's even gold because I think it's, well, who knows? The standards now are completely out the window, but I believe it used to be 250,000 to go gold. So so if that's the case, isn't that wild? That like that album that was, yeah. is so legendary, so wonderful, so earth shattering to anyone who's ever heard it. And it's not even sold a quarter of a million copies. It's it's wild. Why do you why do you think that is? I think because most people like to play it safe. I think most people don't like to be little astronauts in their mind when they're looking for new music. They just kind of wait for something to kind of come to them. Maybe like because it's just like me compared with other things. Like, do I go out of my way to like wait in line for a great pair of shoes? Nah, I just buy whatever I can find. It doesn't matter to me, you know, because because I don't care about shoes. I do care about music, so I go out of my way to make sure I'm I'm hearing everything and buying all the music and blah 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 because that's what I care about. And I think it really does just have to do with how big these subcultures are. Like sneakerheads are a subculture over there and hunting down a great pair of shoes is extremely important to them, but that's also never going to be mainstream, you know? Listening to this beautiful album that no one's ever made anything to to rival it is really important to people like us, but we're a, a different subculture. We're a subculture that hunts out, you know, new interesting music. And that's not a very large group either. It's um, kind of depressing if you think about it. <laughs> I wish there were updated numbers on here because it was recently repressed mm-hmm. since 2003, which is when that was estimated, the number of copies. Right. And it does say it peaked at number 24 on the UK album's charts, mm-hmm. but not it failed to chart in the United States. But, you know, at the time, there was a lot happening in the UK um, with like— you know, you could watch 120 minutes on MTV and you would see so many like Glasgow bands and, you know, so many shoegaze bands, uh, not not necessarily shoegaze, but kind of that from that alternative. Yeah. Um, Cocteau Twins. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, just so many English, the whole creation records set up. So, yeah, I wish they had some sort of update on numbers here. Well, I mean, we can all assume that everything post-streaming sales have dipped enormously. You know, that's that, that's sadly a truth. Yeah. So I would bet, if anything, they've maybe reached their quarter of a million records sold. But Loveless is legend. You know what I mean? Like, like Loveless, at least in my mind, is up there with like, you know, Nirvana's Nevermind with um, the Fuji's The Score, you know? Like it's, it's mm-hmm. one of those like albums that is in everyone's mind as like an important part of their childhood and development as a, a music appreciator. And yet, obviously, the Fugees and Nirvana sold a lot more copies than My Bloody Valentine ever have or ever will. And um, right. I don't know. I can't explain that. Okay. This is maybe slightly off topic, but I recently heard someone saying 
talking about how, when's the last time I actually listened to Nevermind? Oh, for, for me, it was actually pretty recently. I would say probably within the last three years, something like that. I mean, yeah, same for me, mm-hmm. but apparently people, you know, will claim that they love this album, they love that album so much, and they don't actually ever really listen to it because it's just kind of- Huh. So like they loved it at some point in their life, and then they just kind of like yeah. keep it on their mind shelf of favorites, but it's not right. actively listened to. Yeah. Huh. I don't know how much of that is true. That was just, I can't even remember where I heard it, but I thought that was an interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I wonder. I mean, I mean, I, I think also the average person doesn't listen to music very often. Like, I think that's not something they do. Like um, for people like the three of us. Yeah. We will put on an album obviously on like a daily basis. I, I know for sure there are people in my life who they never turn on music, period. They, they only experience yeah. music when it happens to them. Not They never instigate music listening. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah. I, think, I think another piece of that too is I think maybe people conflate, oh, this is a personal favorite of mine with acknowledging and recognizing the impact yeah. and the importance of a record. You know what I mean? Sure, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, there is definitely something of a shortcut in your own mind. If someone asks you what your favorite movie is and you just say Citizen Kane and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course <laughs> sure. it is. And it's like, have you ever seen Citizen Kane? Nah. <laughs> it's my favorite. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there, this album in particular is on so many lists. Uh, spins 100 greatest albums of 1985 to 2005. It's on that one. It's in that book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. 500 great, greatest albums of all time. Brian Eno even said that soon change or set a new standard for, for pop, which I don't think this is pop at all. No, but, but, but if it is, But when you're Brian right. Eno is talking about your band, then you know it's... Um, Big time. Yeah. So cool. That was what? Number three? That was number three. Number two is from 2001 Daft Punk Discovery. Great. And I think, yeah, this one is, I think, similar to a lot of the things we've talked about. It's bringing in different elements from other genres or even uh, taking something people love already and just kind of doing something to it. Yeah. (laughs) Changing it up. Yeah, fusing it with something else, augmenting it a bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I first heard a song from Discovery, and I didn't know which one, and I don't remember which one it was at the time because it wasn't out yet. And I was like, what is this? Where can I get this? And it was Adorave, uh, which I was really only just getting into. But I think hearing this album changed my trajectory to be even more into electronic music. I was already very much into trip hop by then um, with like Portishead and Massive Attack and uh, things like that. Things I saw on MTV Amp, things I saw on Subterranean. But this wasn't that, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I, f- I felt like it was, it was different. <laughs> That's all I can say. It, it was like happier. It took elements of rock, funk, disco, R&B and, and, and fused it with these electronic elements. And I think just sort of changed, changed the vibe for me. 
it, it also made it um, somehow more accessible and more obtuse at the same time, which is, I think, really mm-hmm. special. Because um, I, I do think that when you put almost like a mascoted front to any music group, you do get more people more easily. And I'm not really sure why that is. Like think about Gorillaz compared with Blur. Think about Daft Punk after they became robots compared with before they were robots. You know, like um, there is something about having that image, having that logo, having that mascot be out front. And yeah, their sound is so approachable, so likable. And yet, if you think about all their music videos from that era, they were all that like, you know, Spike Jones, Michelle Gondry style, kind of like mm-hmm. buzzbin style, buzzworthy music video. And yeah. um, they were very like avant-garde, very obtuse, very strange. And yet the music is so appealing and so direct and so good that it is just kind of like this push and pull between like your 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 intellect and your instincts of just like feeling a groove. It's fun. Yeah. And homework is even, which is the album before Discovery, is also legendary. But you're right. I think it went to a whole other level and when the robots were born in 1999, right before this album released. There's a quote that I found that I thought was really cool. Thomas Bangalter, one of the guys from Daft Punk, said... Homework was a way to say to the rock kids, like, electronic music is cool. <laughs> Discovery was the opposite of saying, was the opposite to to say to the electronic kids, rock is cool, you know, you can like that. <laughs> so um, That's fun. And then, yeah, and then he also goes on to say, homework had been a rough and raw thing focused on sound production and texture, whereas the goal with Discovery was to explore song structures and new musical forms. And it was apparently heavily inspired by Aphex Twins' Window Licker. Hmm. So I can hear that. Yeah, you know, lots of samples, of course, too. Changed the game for me. I'm a huge Daft Punk fan. Yeah, yeah, me too. And on the on the theme of experiencing something new for the first time, I very recently saw the animated film. Oh yeah, into that album. So much fun. Interstellar four five. Amazing. So it was like, here's this album that I've known and loved for so long, and it just felt like this completely fresh experience watching it against this amazing film at the same time. I might have been slightly under the influence, which enhanced the experience <laughs> a bit. <laughs> but it was it was great. I loved it so much. And I can't believe I I missed that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like came out in what, 03? Like, where was I? I was on top of Daft Punk stuff and somehow I missed this. Oh, wait, you're talking yeah. about well, Discovery? The, the film. The, well, the Interstellar 5555. Oh, 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 gotcha. I think that gotcha. came out a couple years later, yeah. but yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. yeah. If anyone hasn't seen mm-hmm. it, go out of your way to see it. Because the first time I saw it, it almost felt bootleg. It almost felt like this was someone who had just taken the music and put it over some anime film and it was unrelated, yet somehow it 100% synced up, like very like um, Dark Side of the Moon, Wizard of Oz style, right. you know? <laughs> Um, yeah. But yeah, then when you learn that it's like, no, no, this is clearly intentional. This is clearly made for this. It makes it even stranger in a way that it exists. It's it's really cool. Awesome. All right. We have made it to the very end of my list. Numero uno from 1995. Sonic Youth washing machine. Nice. <laughs>
the first song I heard from this record was Diamond Sea. And it was the first time I'd kind of heard anything like that. Where, that was pretty, but had this like dissonance, this noise. And it, whatever for whatever reason, really spoke to me. And then now, yeah, Sonic Geese is like one of my favorite bands of all time uh, as well. And it's still their longest song ever, coming in at 19 minutes and 37 seconds or something like that. Oh. Yeah. They're in intermission. Of course, edited for <laughs> the radio. Right. But. It's funny. I wonder if um, they chose that length simply because that's how long you can get onto a single side of a record. Like, it, like <laughs> if, if there was any instinct in them of like, all right, let's go longer. It's like, no, 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 no. Then how are we going to put it on a record? You know? Well, it's weird because I I recently just played that full song mm-hmm. in a vinyl set. It was just like ambient and experimental and jazz and stuff. But I think on vinyl, it was like 25 minutes. Is that possible? Um, it depends on how close they put the grooves together when they're pressing mm-hmm. it. I think the maximum is around 30 minutes. And But but the the the... If you're getting 30 minutes on a single side of a record, uh, you have to condense the bands, the the, this, the distance between each groove so close that it makes it uh, much easier to skip, much easier to scratch, much, much more. There's, there isn't as much room for as much information yeah. to be embedded in that wax. So uh, yeah. yeah, no, it, it's because yeah, the other, I, I think there's three versions, at least that I have uh, yeah. of the Diamond Sea. Like, yeah. I really want to pull this Diamond Sea single off the shelves, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. so that I can confirm. Please, one moment yeah, go for it. While I grab it off the shelves. Okay, I've pulled the record from the shelf. Yeah, from the store, I have that one too. And yeah, yeah. The on the twelve inch, the Diamond C is twenty five minutes and fifty. Wait, sorry, yeah, twenty five minutes fifty seconds long, all on one side. I also feel like, and maybe it's the same version, uh, The Destroyed Room was a a compilation of B-sides and rarities and outtakes that Sonic Youth put out at some point in their career. And they had a copy on there too. I wonder if it's that version because I own at least three versions of that song. The album version, the radio edit version, and that version you're holding in your hand right now, the 12-inch version. And I'm not sure if it's the same version on The Destroyed Room or not, but that might be a fifth version. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, long story short, yeah. great pick, Tara. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, and it's cool because that song still has that sort of regular song structure. Yeah. It starts out that way at least and then kind of just like explodes, if you will. But in the edited version for the radio, it does come back to this sort of nice little melody. Plus, on top of that, I mean, aside from that song itself, which is what got me into this album, Washing washing Machine, we get loads of Kim on this record, but she switches from playing mostly bass to playing mostly guitar. And this is, I would say, one of their their noisiest albums. Would you agree with that? As being a fan? Except for their Sonic Youth Records side albums. Remember like the SYR? SYR? Yeah, no, no, no. Apart from those? Regular, I would agree with you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Because those get real noisy and real long also. But but to that point, I do think you're right that Sonic Youth can introduce a person to a lot of new things. Like it can introduce you to liking jam band style music. That's very true. If you're listening to like Murray Street, you're getting some jam style. Oh, 100%. If you're listening to like, um, oh, 
gosh, let's say one of the SYR records, you're going to get introduced to some noise. Like super experimental noise. If, if yeah. you're listening to like that, um, like Yoko Thurston, Kim Gordon trio <laughs> album, then that one, you're going to get introduced to some like avant com- composition type stuff, you know? So like, yeah. you can get introduced to a lot of things through Sonic Youth. I, I, I can personally say that it was thanks to me going to a Sonic Youth show that they had Wolf Eyes opening at the concert that I was introduced to noise bands, period. They did it that, you know? And that's, that's cool as hell, you know? Thanks Sonic yeah. Youth. Um, even the song No Queen Blues, um, it's like they made the noise groovy yeah. somehow. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, it's kind of this like pulsing noise. It, yeah, it, so it's it because it's pulsing, it has like this like metallic-y kind of groove groove swing to it. Right. Um, yeah, I love it. Hey, Tara, I'm, I'm curious because I've heard you talk about your love for Sonic Youth before. How did you discover them? Do you remember that the first song time you heard on Sonic? the radio? Whoa! Oh, that, this is the first time. Oh. Yeah, but it was the radio edit. Uh-huh. It was what, like four minutes long? Gotcha, yeah. yeah. So, so you heard the wow. radio edit, and then when did you hear the full-length version for the first time? Gosh. Um, I can't pinpoint that. Probably when you I bought the album, that. probably. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I actually don't think I had this on CD when I was a teenager. Mm. I don't think I could afford it at the time, but then, you know, it's like you, you start listening, you, you hear many things over time. You're not going to buy a CD for all the things that you've loved, right. especially as a young person. It was, I don't think it was until I, I was much older that I finally got it on CD. So I don't know when I heard the long version. Yeah. Cause yeah, the radio couldn't go 25 minutes without a break, unless it was like college radio, then they can make those daring moves. Yeah. I bet it was in college Mm -hmm. to be honest. Man, I, 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 another thing I miss, I don't know why this went away with most of my friends, but I remember in college and I'm sure most of us have similar situations to this. You're just hanging around with your friends and you're just listening to music. You know what I mean? Like it's very casual. You're just putting on records and listening to stuff, just talking, just, just having a fine time. As you get older, your friends don't put on records as much. (laughs) Like I know, (laughs) I know I still do. Like, like. You have the wrong friends, mister. I agree. <laughs> My friends are garbage people for not putting on more music. Um, but yeah, no, I, I just, I, I really... Th- I felt like at different points in my life, depending upon the city I was living in and the people I was around, it was much more prevalent in my life. And then at a certain point, it's like, wait, why aren't y'all introducing me to new music? (laughs) You're useless as friends. Get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I feel like college was a time where I really discovered a lot, a lot, a lot of new music because you have people from all over. Yeah. The world, even the United States, bringing their own perspectives, bringing their collections mm-hmm. with them and things that they love. And so, yeah, at the college hangout or whatever, at the party uh, or the or the indie venue that you could only afford PBRs at, yeah, you know, yeah. you were you were really I, I just learned about so much music. there. Absolutely. No, and I, I think most people have a similar college experience, but uh I'm sad that it went away for a lot of people. A lot of people uh, give up on that post-college and I must insist that they get back to it. They get back to sharing their music with all their friends. Yeah. Sitting around drinking cheap PBR and listening to music at their friends' houses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That sounds really fun, actually. Yeah. 
I just wanted to call one other detail. It has nothing to do with, well, actually, you know what? It does have something to do with bringing this sort of, ooh, this uh, Sonic Youth new um, sound to the world. This album, Washing Machine, was recorded at Easley Studio in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm from Tennessee. Pavement recorded there. Jay Retard recorded there as well. So I don't know. I feel like there is maybe something there as well. And I don't know what kind of methods they used or anything like that, but I wonder if there's something to that like gritty Memphis sound. So that was my list. Yeah, that was a really interesting topic. Should we do some short list stuff now? Sure. Yeah. I definitely have a few I wanted to put on, but I couldn't. Like, yeah. um, I really wanted the White Album by the Beatles to make it on there because uh, Revolution 9, that song is the first noise like noise song I ever heard. Like that's the first like tape loop sample based noise song ever in my life and probably in a lot of people's lives. And I think it's really important. Slanted and Enchanted by Pavement. That was really cool. Yes. Um, White Light, White Heat by Velvet Underground. Uh, oh, Burned Mind by Wolf Eyes. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, yeah, no, there's there's a lot of great ones. What about you, Natalie? Yeah, I had a really long list. It was hard to pull out just five. Um, quick mentions, anything by the Cocteau Twins. <laughs> just the mm-hmm. whole Cocteau Twins experience yes. was mind-blowing for me. Um, James Blake. I won't go into detail with that because you know how much I love James Blake and could ramble about him for hours, but he's probably the most recent experience of that. Ooh, this feels new, you know, experience that I've had in a long time. Definitely James Blake. Um, Phantomas, their suspended animation album. It's just super quirky, super experimental rock meets cartoon music and nursery rhymes. It's wild. It's over the top. Get into it. And, like Imogen Heap, speak for yourself. Um, I've always really admired Imogen Heap and her ability to use her voice as instrumentation. I feel like I've I've learned a lot from her about clever ways to process and uh, arranging harmonies and, and just using the voice as part of the production of a of a song. She's really good at that. So those are a few of mine. Tara. Cool. I had Aphex Twin on there. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned it on your list, though, so he did get some mention. I mean, he has influenced so many people by this point. Um, Portishead, because trip-hop, and it's just, you know, like very soulful and beautiful, but then you have the, like, more hip-hop style elements with the um, turntables and the beats and stuff. And then um, Air, which I... It was for me, I was trying to decide between air and broadcast, but Mm. broadcast really for me has been one of my favorites. And then I put Guar on here because honestly, (laughs) like one of the first times I ever saw Guar and heard them was in that silly movie from, I think it was- Empire Records, right? No, like late late 80s or early 90s uh, mystery date. Oh. With Ethan Hawke. Now, what- Wow. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that one, but they were definitely in Empire Records, which is the f- first place I ever saw them. So that's funny that movies, two separate movies introduced us to Guar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 1991. So yeah, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, what? And I actually really, I, I was so drawn to it. But then I heard them again from the SFW soundtrack. Mm. 
And the song that I like by them specifically is only on that soundtrack. So yeah, that's my short list. Nice. Nice picks, everybody. I mean, we covered a lot of yeah. ground. We yeah. really did. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Uh, all right, so it's time for us to lock up the store. So let's maybe just go around and uh, choose what we want to put on the uh, employee recommendation shelf. Natalie, go first. Okay, I am recommending Summer of Soul, which is a documentary that came out in 2021, directed by Questlove. It was his directorial debut about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. Have you seen this or heard about this? No. Mm -hmm. I demand you watch it. It's streaming on Hulu <laughs> right now. It's amazing. It tells the story of this. Basically, it's known as Black Woodstock. And it's, it had the most insane lineup, just all the greats, you know, celebrating African-American music and culture. They had Nina Simone. They had Mahalia Jackson. They had a young Stevie Wonder, Sly and the Family Stone, Gladys Knight and the Pips. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And it, I, I've never watched a, a, a music documentary and just had my heart feel so full before. It's, it's a really beautifully well done documentary. Highly recommended. Sounds good. Cool. I'll definitely yeah. check it out. Yeah, me too. I am recommending Pete Yorn's now classic album, Music for the Morning After from 2001. Just because I recently heard a podcast about it where he talks about how he really wanted to keep it more lo-fi, and he just talks about his whole experience recording that album and just getting to where he is now. And it was so interesting to me, so of course I had to revisit, but I I just, as soon as I heard this album, I thought, well, this is a classic. You can hear how influenced he is by, like, Bruce Springsteen and other rock classics, um, big star replacements, people like that. So, yeah, music for the morning after Pete Yorn, 2001. Set. Nice. You want to put something on the shelf like old times? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll dip into some uh, employee nostalgia here. Um, <laughs> if we're talking today about new sounds, things that are new, this is my most recent artist that I was like, wow, new. This is amazing. I've never heard anything like this. Um, her name is Charmaine Lee, and her album, which came out in 2021, is called KNVF. This is her debut album, and it's basically improvised, augmented vocals, chopped up and performed in a way that sounds just new and interesting. It sounds clipped and garbled, and the 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 noises and songs that she makes are just really frightening and beautiful and new. So uh, I, I mean, I can't really describe it because it's it's a wild, wild, wild sound she makes. But yeah, check out Charmaine Lee. She's absolutely wonderful. And uh, KNVF is her debut album, but she has some EPs that came out before that. So I recommend those as well. Wow, oh, never. Let's chase never the dragon, guys. Yeah, I'm going to check yeah. that out for sure. <laughs> 
cool. Yeah. Can't wait to listen to that. But wait, is it weird, like throat singing and stuff? Weird sounds like. But, uh, but I would say, no, this is not like throat singing. This is more like, um, imagine like all of the syllables and kind of like expressions that our mouth makes when we're talking or singing, like all these syllables that my mouth is making right now. She like isolates those and plays them individually like notes, either, oh, okay. either live or with editing. And honestly, it's hard to tell because she's so good at performing this. Like I assumed she was 100% edited the first time I heard her music, but then I actually saw a clip of her performing live and she can actually make these noises in real time as well. So it's, it's oh. hard to tell what's augmented and what's just how she's performing it. Um, but yeah, it sounds like someone is talking or singing and then big chunks are chopped out to make almost like the wrong syllables be next to each other. So it hmm. sounds kind of garbled and new. It's uh, it's beautiful. It's really great. Check out Charmaine, Charmaine Lee. Cool. She kind of pulled a Bobby McFerrin on you. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, um, kind of like a noise version of nice. Bobby McFerrin. Yeah. Gold. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, it's time to lock up the store. Thank you, Seth, so much for visiting yes. us again. It's been fun having you. Yeah, this is really fun. Um, I'm let's so do happy it again to be sometime. here. Absolutely, yeah. I'll, I'll, I will be a a. Um, if I cannot work in this record store, I will be a regular shopper at this record store. Awesome. Sweet. All right, everyone, safe travels. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Record Store Society is hosted by Natalie White and Tara Davies. If you'd like to contact the show, visit our website at recordstoresociety.com. Or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society. <laughs>